And Maui yeah. also was interesting because it um, is definitely, I would say, the island that tourists are excited about. Um, so there's definitely been like a lot of changes to appeal to to tourists in particular, mm-hmm. um, like just you're driving on the street and you just see so many signs for luaus and, uh, you know, for just like pe- people wanting an authentic experience without really wanting an authentic experience, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, yeah. um, people yeah. wanting to say, oh, I went to a luau. So now I know everything about what it means to be like Hawaiian and I wow. understand hula now. And it's like, oh my God, like, no way, no, you do it. <laughs> Hello, hello. Welcome to Young, Gifted, and Abroad, perspectives on studying abroad from past and present students of color. My name is Danielle, and I'm so excited to be able to talk to you today because today I have my friend Megan as the guest. Now, I have someone to thank for connecting me with Megan, and that person is my friend Irene. Irene was the guest featured on episode four of Young, Gifted, and Abroad, and Irene really helped me out by uh, telling Megan about the podcast and getting her interested um, in being a guest on it herself. And so uh, Megan and I scheduled a time to talk, and it all worked out. So. Um, thank you so much, Irene, for being so helpful and supportive. Now, about Megan. Megan is an educator, and after undergrad, she started her career teaching in Hawaii. Uh, she uh, moved there through Teach for America and was there for two years, and that uh, that experience is what took up the bulk of our conversation. Now, you might say, uh, well, Hawaii is not abroad. Hawaii is part of the U.S., so why would you spend so much time talking about that place in, in particular? And uh, to that I would say, as Megan will explain um, more adequately than I can, <laughs> Hawaii was its own uh, sovereign nation and uh, its own kingdom for a really long time before it was made uh, to be a U.S. state. And in fact, it hasn't even been 60 years. I think it'll be 60 years next year. Um, that In 2019, it'll be 60 years since Hawaii became a U.S. state. So, uh, one, it hasn't been that long. Also, <laughs> also, as you will hear Megan explain better than I can, um, there are certain things about Hawaii that uh, make it unique and different and uh, kind of a place set apart um, in ways that can't and shouldn't be ignored so um, there's that as well that's that's basically it that's the reason why (laughs) Um, so we spent a lot of time talking about Hawaii and then we also spent some time talking about uh, Megan's experiences volunteering in Tanzania and the Dominican Republic Um, which she did while she was still in college. So she shares a bit about the pitfalls that she observes about um, uh, activities such as the ones that she participated in, uh, but also some really fascinating information about the cultural landscape of those places um, and also how doing that in college really set her up as far as her mindset and her purpose for traveling going forward in the future. Um, so lots of really, really good things coming out of this conversation. I had such a good time. Megan is so smart and so thoughtful, and I really hope that you, uh, can enjoy and and appreciate what she has to say. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy my interview with my friend, Megan Shokar. 
but it's so nice to meet you. <laughs> you too. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that Irene was able to put us in touch with each other. And um, I appreciate you for being able to make the time on a Saturday morning to, oh gosh, to talk and be a guest on this podcast. Um, okay, so I guess, well, I mean, like, how are you doing? How is your morning going so far? It's going pretty well so far. I am just like relaxing um, because it's raining. So I was like, I'm just gonna like relax a little bit and like take it easy and then have kind of like a busier day later on. Mm, okay. Yeah. How, how are you doing? It's your I'm all right. Now. Yeah, uh, I'm fine. It's pretty uneventful. It's a gray day, it's, uh, but I guess that's winter is coming. So I guess that's <laughs> hard for the course. <laughs> all right. Okay, so. Uh, why don't we start with you introducing yourself, if you don't mind. Sure. So my name is Megan Shokar, and I was born in the city of Detroit in Michigan, and I was raised in sort of the metro Detroit area, um, and then I stayed around home uh, to go to school at the University of Michigan, um, and I graduated in 2016 with a degree in cognitive science with a focus on language and cognition. And I really knew that my like love and passion was education, in particular, um, I really loved uh, language education because for me that had been such like a meaningful part of my schooling experience. And I was just like, wow, this is what I want to do. And since I studied like the brain and um, and really felt like I had a, a deeper understanding of, of what our brains do to like understand language and to to use like our innate faculties to, to be able to process it and, and utilize it so well, um, I really wanted to like have a future in that. So that actually kind of led me to um, Teach for America, where mm -hmm. I decided to um, go live in Hawaii on the Big Island uh, with like um, just like an amazing community of, you know, indigenous native peoples um, and also local people who had been there for so many generations. Um, and I taught special education there, uh, mostly English. And then after that, um, so I was there for two years. And then after that, I moved to the San Francisco Bay Area um, to continue teaching, uh, predominantly um, like general education. But it's really cool because it's inclusion. So now I, I get to like teach like learners of all different cognitive um, strengths and challenges. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's been so much fun. So I'm I like love teaching and so glad that my journey kind of like just led me here. So it's been amazing. Yeah, that's wonderful that um, that you have such a passion for teaching. I know a lot of people, um, well, I've heard of a lot of people going into teaching is kind of like a, maybe not last resort, but maybe they don't know what else to do. It's kind of just like a, a thing to do for the time being, you know. So it's it's nice to hear that you, this is actually like your passion and you enjoy doing it, you know. Um, I think that's really special. Being able to work in your passion is is really admirable. Um, I didn't know you were from Michigan. Irene told me some things about you. She didn't mention you were from Michigan, but that's cool. That's yeah, cool. we went to high school together. <laughs> oh, okay. So y'all known each other for a while. A long time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, that's great. And so you were um, you were placed in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. uh, did you had you wanted to go there? Like, is there a way you can request where to go when you sign up for Teach for America? Yes. So when you um, 
when you kind of go through the process with Teach for America, one of the last stages is like a, a placement process. And they really want you to rank uh, 10 different locations in the United States that you'd be willing to go. So Teach for America has 52 regions, I think, all across the different states. Um, we're not in them, I want to say. Um, and so basically you rank the regions and you say like where you'd be most excited to go, uh, where you would be willing to go and like where you would consider but like are not excited about. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they really like, they base it on the need. And that's like, I think a very important, you know, piece to keep in mind is like, you know, you're signing up for a commitment to do something for our communities across the, the nation. And, and like that, you know, you can't just like, it's not meant to be like a just just a fun experience. It's meant to be something like deeply meaningful. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did actually rank Hawaii as my first option. And that actually had a lot to do with just like my own upbringing. So I grew up as like a brown woman in a predominantly white community. And I felt like growing up, I wasn't always claiming my identity as like a woman of color. And I didn't always really understand what that meant. And I was always trying to assimilate so mm-hmm. strongly, just like I wanted to be white and like wanted to act white and you know whatever that meant to me as a high schooler so it wasn't really until college that I realized um that there was so much beauty in the diversity that existed uh, across like the college campus I was on across the state across the country and like definitely across the world and I knew that I needed to see something different from what I grew up with in like you know metro detroit in michigan like that's Mm -hmm. a very uh unique bubble and i wanted to see something totally different and just like expand what i understood of the world so i thought it would be um really meaningful for me to to go totally outside of my comfort zone and move to an island which is thousands of miles from any other place Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know um and i i thought that would be like a challenge but also um just like eye-opening and and hopefully rewarding. I was hoping it would. I was hoping it would go well, and uh, luckily it did. It was definitely an adjustment, but I wanted to be amongst a, a truly diverse community. And I think I would definitely say the most diverse state in terms of racial, racial and ethnic backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, like just the populations that exist there. Like it's so incredible to see so many people come together as like one uh, community. Uh, although there are lots of struggles also and like definitely in the last 10 15 years there have been changes um where like there are definitely some groups who are marginalized and oppressed and like that needs to be you know worked on a lot um but there's definitely like something to be said about the way that hawaii handles um just like taking in people who are you know different from them um differently from how other states do it i would say yeah yeah, you know that brings to mind. Um, Irene had mentioned to me that you, and I kind of have heard this before, but I think you said something to her about how like um, Hawaii is a is a U.S. state now, but uh, to people who live there, it's still very much uh, different. It's yeah. almost like um, like separate from the rest of the states, not just geographically, obviously, but like ethnically and culturally, it's like it's almost like a different place, a different country. Um, can you speak to like the, um, I guess the type of opinions you observed when you were Hawaii, in Hawaii regarding that? And if you have any personal opinions regarding the, the exceptional nature of Hawaii, um, do you mind sharing that as well? Yeah, um, so I think what I found so interesting was like, I knew that it was a state, you know, it was 
the 50th state, um, Mm -hmm. you know, that was made a part of the United States of America. But it was uh, done in a way that was, um, I mean, maybe not that different from a lot of like the states that used to be Mexico, but Mm -hmm. it was really unique in that um, Hawaii was a sovereign nation, uh, was a a kingdom and had, you know, their own way of ruling, um, you know, their islands, the eight islands. And it was just such um, like an independent place full of so much, culture and beauty and like spirituality that is so unique to that one um, set of islands. But then when the colonizers came and they, um, you know, made it, they basically changed everything, you know, changing language, bringing different religious beliefs, uh, really like imposing their own way of life on the, the native Hawaiian people. Um, things really took a turn. And uh, over the years, as um, Hawaii became a an American territory and then eventually a state um, and a state really not that long ago. I want to say like 40 something, maybe 50 something like it was like in the forties or fifties or mm-hmm. I forgot exactly what year it was, but it was like very recently that this, that this happened like, yeah. you know, 60 years ago, I think. Um, I mean, that's like pretty mind blowing to me to, to think that, that it's such a young state and that truly like a lot of the people in Hawaii uh, still think of themselves as like potentially going to be a sovereign nation again one day, um, mm. which makes a lot of sense when you're there because you're like, wow, I don't feel like I'm in the United States. You know, the airports feel different. The the way that people walk down the street, it's like a very different tempo to the life. Um, and maybe that's like an island thing. But I think in Hawaii, it's, it is exceptional because people really do value um, just just different things and uh, and they prioritize different things from w- what they call the mainland. Um, some people are kind of opposed to that that term because it makes it sound like that is more like the mainland is more important. It's the main mm-hmm. part of the country as opposed to the islands. Um, so some people refer to it as like the contiguous United States or the 48 or um, the continent. So people have different terms. Um, but I would say ju- definitely the vast majority of the people that I met over my two years there called it the mainland and didn't really feel like there was a connotation with that being, um, with that making Hawaii less important. So Mm -hmm. I think something that I thought was so phenomenal when I, when I, um, was living there was on the back of a lot of cars and trucks. There's a lot of trucks because the Big Island is very rural. Um, (laughs) On the back of a lot of these trucks, a lot of people had stickers that say defend Hawaii and Mm -hmm. they have like a big, like, I don't even know if they're rifles. I'm not really sure. I don't really know a lot about, a lot about, you know, guns and stuff. But they um, they had these stickers and they would say, like, defend Hawaii. And when I asked people, like local people, what does that mean? They would say it means, like, this is going to be, like, a sovereign nation again one day. And, like, we're defending Hawaii from being, you know, really a part of, like, a, any other country or community, even though that's not really something that, like, actively on the streets you see every day. But yeah. it is something that people talk about in their homes and they talk about it in, you know, smaller community groups. Um, there are a lot of people who still feel like the the struggles, you know, when the colonizers came in and they basically learned some Hawaiian and then decided, mm, yep, you guys don't get to speak that anymore. You wow. all need to speak English. Now there's this, like, a uh, 
you know, reemergence of the Hawaiian language because people are opening up immersion schools. And that only really started in the 80s. So for many, many years, the Hawaiian language was not being spoken in homes. It was not being spoken in schools. People were discouraged from from ever learning it. And really, it only stayed with the Kumu, uh, the Kumu Hula. So the Hawaiian dance teachers um, who really are like the the holders of so much knowledge and um and they are really the ones who educate their their community and like make sure that the children are being brought up with um, Hawaiian values, Hawaiian culture, Hawaiian language, Hawaiian music, Hawaiian dance, like all of those things. Um, so that was really when I started to learn about how people actually don't see themselves as necessarily as Americans. So when I would ask my students, I taught ninth through 12th grades there, and mm-hmm. my students would tell me, no, no, we're not American, Miss. We're Hawaiian. Or, you know, if you were a different ethnicity, you know, oh, no, no, I'm Marshallese. I'm Mexican. I'm Filipino. I'm Japanese. I'm anything, but I'm not American, which is yeah. interesting because if they look at their citizenship status, like it's American, but the identity is not as internal in that way. It was, it kind of blew my mind because for me, that was like always one of the first identities that I had kind of claimed, even mm-hmm. when others didn't put it on me, when others would see me and say, well, you're a brown woman, so you're not American. And I was like, well, no, I was born here. I was raised here. I'm American. But but my kids really didn't have the same perspective. For them, it was like, no, this is, uh, we're, we're in Hawaii. This is not America, you know? And they would <laughs> tell me that. They would tell me this is yeah. not America. And I was like, oh, this is so interesting to me, you know? I couldn't really believe it. Wow. Yeah, that's so cool. Thank you for... Um for uh, explaining all that the way you did. Um, it really brings to mind, especially when you mentioned the whole mainland thing, um, like that really kind of brought to mind for me the like like the colonialist nature of like the relationship between US and, and or continental US and, and Hawaii, because that's kind of, if you look at other countries, like, um, like okay, because because I have studied French for a long time, a lot of like former colonies, like in the Caribbean or in Africa, they'll refer to France as the metropole, especially like mm. Paris. Like that's the, because that's like the center of where France. Well, that's France, obviously. That's the center of where French language comes, where French culture, education comes. You know, um, or even I think in the in with the UK, even like there was this idea that like the UK was the motherland so you'd have like these jamaican people or these antiguan people thinking of the uk as the motherland you know um so just think that like even with hawaii there's this dynamic of like we're part of this nation but like this other place over here is the center of it all it's like wow like because i think we're conditioned to not see america as colonialist even though like history would show that it is, you know, cause we're kind of the products yeah, yeah. of colonialism, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's, that's just really, yeah, that's just really, <laughs> cause I've known of those other examples, but when you explained it just now, it's like, wow, like we really kind of replicated those same sorts of practices, you know? Um, I didn't know that a lot of people are still hoping that Hawaii will be sovereign again. Um, that that really obviously it's different because like Quebec is a very white place, but in Quebec, I don't know if you've ever been, but it's a very similar thing where because they're like the like the French speaking part of Canada and they were kind of it was like a thing between England and France, like who was gonna get Quebec? Um and then 
I don't know. It's just like culturally, linguistically, it's a very unique place. And so a lot of people will have like, you know, you'll see the Quebec flag instead of the Canadian flag. Or, you know, there'll be people who hope to separate from Canada one day and have Quebec be its own nation. Like that, um, yeah, that came to mind as well when you were talking about Hawaii. Um, I'm sorry if I'm rambling. I'm just, you're, you're <laughs> making me think on all these things that, you know, are, are, are very similar yeah. and um, really puts things in perspective. Um, yeah, that's, that's really fascinating. Uh, had you been to Hawaii before you were placed there with Teach for America? No, so I had never visited. So it was kind of a huge gamble to be like, I'm going to move there for two years and I've never been there. Um, so it, uh, really a lot of it was just going on my gut and yeah. uh, and going based on what I'd heard from other people. And my parents had visited and my little brother had visited. So they were just like, man, it's so incredibly beautiful. And the people are so kind and, and relaxed that like, you know, if you're going through a stressful experience like Teach for America, like this is probably a good place to, mm-hmm. to, to do that, you know. Um, so I really, I didn't know what I was getting into. Um, and even initially it was quite a shock just because things were so different from like the college life I had come from. You know, I came from like the hustling and bustling Ann Arbor where, you know, like, you know, you live within a mile of like all of your friends and, (laughs) you know, you just, uh, you're just constantly like, you know, busy and like the, you're just, your days are 18 hours, you know, nonstop and like it's really really like crazy when you're in college and then to suddenly be somewhere where uh you know the sun goes down and like all right activity is over for the day like now it's time to go home and like be with your family and and just like prioritize them and uh and focus on other things that was such a huge like culture shock for me mm-hmm. and then even returning to the United States or I mean returning to the United States returning to the mainland afterwards it has felt like a culture shock again of like, oh my gosh, I forgot that this is what we prioritize here of like yeah. sense of urgency constantly, you know, which is like such an interesting, uh, I think very American and like Western European concept and, and probably predominantly American of like, you know, there's this sense of urgency that you must live with like a hundred percent of the time. Mm-hmm. You should always be busy. You should always be doing something that's productive. Whereas in Hawaii, people are kind of like, well, let's honor your time and let's honor what you're what you're doing with your with your time, you know, and like if you're late to a meeting, people won't necessarily assume that you don't care about the meeting. They might assume, oh, you ran into somebody that you needed to catch up with or you were helping somebody with something or something important came up, but they honor that and they really value that as opposed to going straight to what people might go to here, which is like, oh, you don't care about this. So you didn't prioritize it. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, like that's just different values, you know? So I think that for me was a huge shock of like, oh my gosh, like I'm in the United States legally, economically, politically, like technically, but when it comes to like culture, it's entirely different. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's so in, in the process of like interviewing people on this podcast who've been to various places, that's something that comes up a lot is like this, the American, um, like kind of focus or maybe even obsession with productivity and not being able to like uh, prioritizing like work or productivity or efficiency over like enjoying your time or making time for things that matter more personally to you. That's something that comes up, which um, I don't know. Everything has its place. Every, every place is different, but like that's come up so many times from other people. And it's just like, wow, do I really (laughs) 
Because I don't think about it that when you're in it, you don't think about how, like, wow, am I, like, am I living, like, a workhorse? Is, like, does, is, is this really prioritized, like, what I think about, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that's a really uh, good point that you make, uh, because I've heard that numerous times at this point. So it's, like, really, like, a, uh, a cause for reflection, you know? Sure. Um do you think when, because I know you said in college that kind of opened your mind in terms of considering yourself a person of color, what that means to you. Um, did that, was that further affected uh, through your time in Hawaii? Absolutely. So for me, um, I owe so much to the islands of Hawaii because I just like totally found myself while I was there um, because I really didn't know you know, my, my own identity. I didn't really know, like, culturally, where do I come from? And like, what does that mean? Um, Because my grandparents, all four of my grandparents uh, were born and raised in Punjab in Northern India. Hmm. But when they were all in their early 20s, they actually all made the move to um, England. So at the time, like, there was um, basically the system where England uh, or the United Kingdom was taking highly educated Indians and basically um, some people call it the brain drain where they were basically Mm. taking the most educated people and moving them over to England, but not to be educated professionals, but actually to work in um, a lot of blue collar jobs. So it was really interesting because, and I actually only really recently learned about this when I started interviewing my grandparents um, this past summer, because I was asking them like, how did that work where you were, you know, highly regarded in your community in Punjab and then you moved to England and had to do um, a job as like, uh, for example, one of my grandfathers, he worked um, making time cards for like a company. So he would like calculate how long people had been at work and make sure they got paid. But like he was actually a teacher um, and trained to be a math teacher. And like in Punjab, that was a highly, you know, esteemed position to be a teacher, you know, passing on knowledge is considered like one of the greatest things that you can do in the culture. But then in England, it was like, no, you don't get to be a teacher, even though they had told him, you do get to be a teacher when you come to England. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like that's why we're taking you. And then he got there and they said, actually, you're not going to do that. Um, And they, you know, didn't pay him what his, uh, what his value really was. Um, So what I actually uh, grew up with was thinking that England was my motherland. It was actually really sad. You know, my parents were born and raised in England. My older siblings were born there. Um, They didn't move over until 1994 when I was born. Um, So it was actually like it was for me so profound to actually realize when I was living in Hawaii that truly my native land, Punjab, is a place I need to go. I had never been there in my entire life. I've wow. been to England like way more times than I can count because all my grandparents are still there. My, all my aunts and uncles are still there, my cousins. So we go back so much to go see them. And I would always you know, say to my friends, oh, I'm going back to the motherland, going to London. And then I realized when I was in Hawaii, what am I talking about? <laughs> like, that is craziness to even think that that is my, that that's my motherland. And like, it's because, I mean, colonization works, right? Like they get what they want. And I had never made it to Punjab in my entire life, 24 years, you know, it took me um, to, to get there because uh, basically when I was in Hawaii, I joined a halal, which is a like hula school. Mm-hmm. So when I was learning hula, um, a big part of that, it's really not like just dancing like people might imagine, but it's actually like understanding your own ancestry. So there's something called your mo'oku. Kuauho. It's I'm still like trying to remember all the Hawaiian words because I haven't used them in a long time. Um, you're a mo'okuauho, and uh, that's like basically your ancestry. It's being able to say like 
go back through your lineage like four generations and name the people and you say like basically you say like these are my great grandparents this is their child then you say like these are my grandparents this is their child these are my parents now i am their child and you basically go mm. through and, and when you meet somebody you should be able to say this to them so in hawaiian culture it's very important that you are able to to reflect on your um, ancestry and to be able to name those ancestors because you're standing on their shoulders and everything that you are is because of them and and i really learned that through hula and then when I realized, oh my gosh, I didn't know these names. I didn't know these people. I don't even know their land. I've never seen their land. Oh my gosh, I got to go see it. So actually when I moved to California, a big reason was because there is a large Punjabi community here and I mm. wanted to kind of come in touch with this community. And then I told my parents, I said, we got to go to India. I need to go. I need to see it. I've never <laughs> seen it. So right. I actually just went and I got back last, um, last Saturday um, from my trip and it was so amazing to go actually see my real motherland, see my real native land. And all of yeah. us, the Hawaii, you know, like I didn't realize how much I was missing out on until I was standing there on my farm that's been in my family for countless generations. We can't even count how long it's been in our family, you know, and to, to be standing there in those fields and go, wow, like we're not even here anymore. Not a single person in my family lives on that farm anymore. We have, you know, there's people who manage the land and things like that. But not one person in my family lives in our house that we have there on our farm taking care of our own land. And I'm like, the value of aina, which in Hawaiian culture means like that from which you come. Mm. So like the land, like um, like anything that, you, like basically the land. So like when you're just in Hawaii, people will talk about the aina, they'll talk about like what we come from. And in Hawaiian culture, you don't say that you ever own land because you can't own it because we're temporary and the aina is kind of forever. But wow. they say, um, you know, like you belong to the land and that's the land that you take care of. So for me, like to see my own aina was like, oh my gosh, I can't even believe I, I didn't even long for this until I was in Hawaii and I realized I am missing out, you know. So for me, like my cultural identity and the knowledge and the awareness that I have now of it is entirely thank you, you know, to Hawaii. Like, yeah. Entirely. That's amazing. I'm so glad. I didn't know that that was where you were traveling um, uh, recently. I, that's so amazing. You were able to go back to where your where your family is from. That's very special. Um, yeah. H had your parents been before? So, you know, what's interesting is my, my dad went uh, twice as a child. My mom went once as a child. Okay. And then they went again in 1994, like a few months before I was born. So I was kind of there, but like not really there, you know. <laughs> um, so my mom's always like, you've been. I'm like, no, I haven't been. Like, that doesn't count at all. Mm -hmm. um, so they had been. And then my dad just started going again um, because for his job. So he works in the Detroit area. Um, he actually like now has a team in India because like all of this like globalization, you know, like there are teams, so many international teams. One of his teams is there. So he goes back like every six months now for the last two or three years um, to go work with his team. So he actually is so much more comfortable there now. So mm. now he was like, OK, now I'm willing to take you because I like know the place and I like have connections now. So I feel comfortable because you always hear so much stuff. And like a lot of it is propaganda trying to kind of keep us out of our own like native country. Yeah. Um you know, the way that people portray India in the media is like, I would say super biased and unfair because the India that I experienced, and granted I was only there for a week and it was a rather sheltered experience because I was with my parents. But mm -hmm. what I did see of Punjab, and I, I traveled around a lot, we were, you know, seeing a lot of different parts of Delhi and, and Punjab. I was not seeing what people had been describing, like 
yes, there are good things and bad things to every place that you go to, but truly like there's so much beauty to be seen. But I think when people try to paint a picture of like, oh, there's no point in you going back. I think sometimes we have to question what is their motive behind that? Why is yeah. it that they don't want us to know where we come from and to return to our own land? Like, what is that? You know? Yeah. Yeah, that's so important. Um, yeah, listening to you talk about the whole, like, no, having to know your ancestors uh, being so important as part of Hawaiian culture and you personally not, until recently, not really having a connection where you come from. Um, you know, that's obviously very salient for me as a, you know, descendant of um, uh, enslaved peoples from Africa, you know. Uh, that's all very... Because even in our, even if though we don't know where we come from, reverence for our elders is really important for in the Black community. And you know, um, yeah, it's it's interesting how similar that is. Obviously, you know, there are differences, very unique and special differences. But it's interesting how those themes are are relevant to so many different groups of people. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, wow, that's amazing, and I'm so. I'm so glad that during your time you took the the initiative or maybe you kind of didn't have a choice to have to learn Hawaiian culture, learn Hawaiian language um, and still be able to remember so much of it. Um, I'm sure that added, you know, value and depth to your experience and being able to talk about it now, you know. Um, so it, you said you were teaching grades nine through 12, right? Yes. Um, I'm wondering, uh, obviously, you're you're in the in the states officially, uh, but did you notice any um, any uh, really poignant differences in terms of the education system, or just or maybe even just how high school is in Hawaii compared to in the states? Yeah, so I think what's interesting is like so much of education policy is state based, mm -hmm. and I think that that's like a very um, interesting problem in this country where uh, it really, like, I think that really impacts what students are getting out of their school experience. So in Hawaii, there, um, there used to be something called furlough Fridays. And basically, a lot of the students that I taught, they grew up with like not going to school every Friday, because there was like a budget cut, and they did school four days a week. And mm -hmm. so on the fifth day of the week, like they wouldn't have school. And that was so interesting to me because I really saw the impact on their educations by like, they were only in school 80% of what they should have been, you know? Mm -hmm. And like, and I really noticed that because I've been teaching English and English is the kind of thing where like, that's reading, writing, communicating, right? right. Like if you are listening to something and you're struggling to comprehend it. Like that's going to take a lot of time to, um, to kind of remedy and to like help you, you know, there's a lot of supplemental work that you have to do to be able to get to a point of um, having the knowledge base that you need and like the skill set that you need. So I think um, I really noticed the impact of that. And I think part of that comes from like how the budget works. Um, I don't really know a lot about the Hawaii state government, but like I know that there are like definitely budget issues when it comes to like paying teachers and um, funding education. And I think a lot of that is being worked on, um, but it's still like a very slow process. And I definitely noticed that like um, the community would value teachers. So like when I would meet people and tell them oh, I'm a teacher, they would be like, oh, wow, like I'm, we're so glad that you're doing that work. And like mm -hmm. they would really be so respectful of like what I was doing much more than I've seen in any other state as a teacher. Um, but I think uh, when it comes to like the political and economic side of it, there's still this like devaluing of education. And that is a national problem. But I think also in Hawaii, just like 
the fact that um, that I think our kids need a, a unique education. They should be learning like Hawaiian history, Hawaiian language. Some of those are options in, in most schools. I would say like probably most high schools, definitely the high school I was at, um, you know, they have options for like Hawaiian history electives, or um, I think that there's a mandate that all 11th graders have to take like a modern Hawaiian history course. Um, so it's like, there are definitely some unique things that they, that they go through, but I think still to see that like, our students didn't go to school on Fridays when they were growing up. Like that mm. blew my mind. I was like, that's not acceptable. Like that's, um, I think really, really harmful to our kids. And I, and I just felt like that was an interesting thing because the conversation that I was hearing socially around that was not like, you know, like outrage. Like I had, I was outraged over it, you know, but not everybody was. And I felt like that was, if you did that in Michigan, like, and you said, Oh, like no school on Fridays cause we can't afford it. Like as a state, People would be like everybody, like, you know, it would be a bipartisan issue where people would be like, no way we're going to school on Fridays. Um, but I think <laughs> yeah. I think that there were just like different approaches and different histories that like led to a different reaction or and, you know, maybe some people were outraged. But I think it was definitely um, not an outrage that has like lasted as loudly as. I maybe would have expected. Um, mm -hmm. And maybe maybe they've worked through it. I'm not really sure because I wasn't there for the furlough Fridays. But when I heard talks of those potentially coming back, I was like, heck no, I'm going to be here on Fridays teaching my kids. And like, there's no way you can take me out of this classroom on a Friday. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. I Well, obviously, there's tons I don't know about Hawaii, but that's something I certainly never would have thought about um, or considered. Um, yeah, that's so... That's so interesting. Um, I'm trying to think. Oh, yes. So you were on the big island, right? Yes. So did you travel around to the other islands as well? Yes. So I went to Oahu a few times and I went to Maui once. Um, and I didn't end up making it to the other islands. When I was going to go to Kauai, they actually, that was when they had um, like massive storms and there was like the flooding um, that happened uh, in like the spring this year. So it was really destructive and I just didn't think it would be a good time to go kind of like impose myself when they were trying to heal from that. Mm -hmm. um, so I didn't end up making it to some of the other islands, but I still have plans to go back and I still plan to go back um, even to the big island uh, just to like visit with the people that I love so much there. Yeah. Um, but I did get to go. Oahu, I think, was really interesting because it has the city of Honolulu, which is the state capital. And um, Honolulu is like so funny because it's such like a big city um, vibe, you know, like where the people are um, – you know, hustling and bustling through all their traffic. And it's like, it's very busy and kind of chaotic, but it's also like, then you look around and you're like, but look at all these beautiful like landscapes and all these palm <laughs> trees and here's the ocean. And you're just like, oh yeah, yeah, we're still on an island. Yeah. Um, so that was really interesting because Oahu is a very small island geographically, like compared to the big island. So it was really interesting to, um, to see just like the difference and the population is so much greater than any other island, which is, like kind of mind blowing when you're there and you're like, where are all these people coming from? Like the big <laughs> island is, you know, about 5,000 square miles and a population of like less than 200,000. So it's like really tiny population on a really big island. Um, and then you go to Oahu and it's like tiny, tiny little island. And there's like one point something million people there. Um, mm. It's like mind blowing. And Maui yeah. also was interesting because it um, is definitely, I would say the island that, 
tourists are excited about. Um, so there's definitely been like a lot of changes to appeal to to tourists in particular, mm. um, like just you're driving on the street and you just see so many signs for luau's and, uh, you know, for just like people wanting an authentic experience without really wanting an authentic experience, mm, yeah, you know, yeah. um, people yeah. wanting to say, Oh, I went to a luau. So now I know everything about what it means to be like Hawaiian. And I wow. understand hula now. And it's like, <laughs> oh my God, like, no way. No, you don't. And, and sometimes, sometimes it also like breaks my heart because I see, like, I saw some of my own kids who would have to perform in like, in, like at luau's and, uh, you know, perform for tourists, like in these shows. And sometimes I would wonder like, are they ever given the opportunity to really reflect on what that what that might mean for them really inside? And like they're young, you know, 16, 17 years old when they're doing these performances. So in a lot of ways, they're like, look, I'm being paid like that's my priority. And I totally get that. Um, but then I also wonder, like, who is it that might be kind of exploiting these children and their culture? Uh, and do people ever really get a chance to, like, think about that and reflect on that? And to me, that's very important. But I also understand that, like, I'm coming from a, an extreme place of privilege to be able to even, like, think, like, oh, I can, like, opt out of that because I mm. have, like, a job that, like, pays my bills. So I don't have yeah. to, you know, worry. Like, I, I get to opt out of things, whereas, like, that's not the case for everybody. Mm -hmm. um, but I still, like, really want to pressure the people who are in charge, the people who are making a lot of money off of these luaus. Like, what is it that you are prioritizing? Are you prioritizing, like, people having fun uh, who are coming from the continent? Or are you prioritizing, like, a true, authentic learning experience so that they can understand more about Hawaii and, like, what the culture means, what the language means, um, and, like, truly be able to have an appreciation in their heart? So when they go home, now maybe they can be allies with Hawaii when they see things going on, on in the media. Maybe yeah. they can help speak up. Or when they hear their friends saying, I'm going to be a hula dancer for Halloween, like that's like, you know, having that conversation of like, you know, that's actually not okay. And here's why, like, you know, will it, will these luau's promote, you know, more people dressing up for Halloween as hula dancers or will it deter them? And like, I guess mm -hmm. for me, like, that's a big question I have. And I really hope it's more of a, a reverence that is established amongst people who live on the continent. But I also don't know if that is the case. Yeah. Um, so it's hard. It's hard because I haven't done like real studies on this. It's more <laughs> of like my own anecdotal evidence and my own approach to it, you know? Yeah. But it, it's good to be aware of these things and to be thinking about them. Um, yeah. Especially like places like Hawaii that are kind of framed as like vacation destinations. Yeah. We don't always we're not always predisposed to think about the, the, um, like the consequences of those types of things, you know? Yes. Um, so you, you mentioned though, wanting to go back to visit the, the, the people that you love from that time, were these your neighbors or like friends that you made while you were there? Like what kind of like relationships did you develop while you were there for teach for America? So I actually, um, I was so lucky to be so warmly welcomed into the community. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of it was like my colleagues and my kids were um, so kind to me, you know, and they really wanted me to be a part of um, a part of their, their lives. And that was so beautiful because really strong bonds with my kids and my colleagues, but then also like joining a hello. And I only did it for a few months. Um, it was 
really difficult in terms of timing because Hula is a very like large time commitment. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did that for a few months and just the connections that I made. And it was actually funny because my Kumu, my teacher for Hula was actually the mother of one of my students. So it was like really cool, like how Aww. intertwined our community is, you know, and she's like extremely like well-known and well-respected in the community. She just like is such um, like uh, just such a, a role model and um just like a supporter and an advocate for for like her culture. And I love that so much. So I actually got to join the Halal and I met a lot of people through that. And I learned a lot through that. So that was amazing. And then I also joined um, a karate school, uh, which was really fun. And, and I couldn't go like a ton just because I was also working at the same mm-hmm. time and working on my master's at the same time. So I didn't have like a ton of time to be practicing or training. Um, but when I was able to go, like, honestly, it was there. I was there for for the bonds that I was having, like with the other kids kids who were learning and also like with the family that um that actually like runs the school so I actually like they're some of my closest people in Hawaii um they are so kind like they send me birthday cards and like Halloween cards and Christmas cards it's like so sweet um and so we keep in touch a lot um but they are so special to me because they really were my family on the island it's like a dad who's the main um teacher uh, a mom who is like basically everybody's mom <laughs> and then <laughs> they have two kids and the kids like were basically like you know my cousins on on the island yeah. and it's funny because in Hawaii people do say like oh that's my cousin that's my cousin even if you're not really related by blood like people mm-hmm. still it's more about the connection <laughs> that you have that's funny we and do the like, same thing like yeah. black folk we do the same thing <laughs> yeah I feel like so many communities um are are like that right where we're like where we are just like oh yeah like that's my cousin and and yeah. I kind of grew up doing that too where like people wouldn't be my cousins but I'd be like yeah yeah that's my cousin that's my cousin and right. it's just like how you relate to people you know and so for me I would like at school kids would be like oh you know this person I'd be like yeah yeah that's my cousin and they'd be like really like you're not from here miss and I'd be like no no it's like you know what I mean <laughs> I'd be like you know right. it's like my cousin you know and they, they they got it so it was really funny um because like they they really like were my family so it was really I think I made the relationships by um, putting myself out there and being mm-hmm. like, I'm going to randomly walk into this karate school and be like, can I join please? And like, I've never done a moment of this in my entire life. And I'm not mm-hmm. really, I think my teacher would still tell you like, she's not really a fighter. Like I'm just <laughs> kind of more of a pacifist, but just like the, um, experience and like sense of community that I got was just like so amazing um and I just feel like so lucky because it was like so much more about the people than about any of the things that I got to do you know and it was like just getting to like travel around the island and like meet local people and talk to them like I'm like I miss it so much because I think it is such a unique place and for me the the struggle was being so like far away from my family of like when I would have to go back for something, I will, I would either miss a significant event or I would have to fly. And that costs a lot of money to fly that yeah. far. You know, it's like, it's like almost 5,000 miles. Um, that's like really, really far to, to go. So like that kind of thing was, was a struggle for me. So I was always trying to convince my parents, like you guys should move out here. It's so amazing. Um, <laughs> but like I was unsuccessful in that. Um, yeah. but I wish I could have, because honestly, like that is the kind of place where I want to raise my kids there. I want them to have those values, like those local values. And I also want them just to like be focused on the Aina and focused on like what surrounds them, um, in terms of like people and the place and like yeah. not be focused on like man-made things all the time. You know, I think that can be a big struggle for people nowadays. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. Um, yeah. I'm so glad you were able to to find that community while you were there. And, and 
uh, keep in touch with that community as well. That's so important um, to have people that that uh, feel like family to you, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, feel like you have people to rely on, and and um, especially when you're in a place that's uh, new to you, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so okay, so one of the things I've heard about Hawaii is that it's really expensive. Yeah. I'm wondering, since you were working for Teach for America, do you feel like that was sufficient for your living expenses while you were there? Or, um, I mean, maybe did you have to take on side jobs or or is it even that expensive in Hawaii at all? Like, what was your experience with that? Yeah, so Hawaii is really expensive. And I would say that the disparities are, are really enormous um, in terms of like the people, like the millionaires who come in and like buy a condo or buy a house that they're like going to visit once or twice a year. Like you see that and you're like, wow, like that's totally bizarre. But then you also see the other end of it where there are families who are taking on multiple jobs and like the kids work to help support their families or like mm-hmm. kids will might miss school because they need to work to support their families. You know, like there are definitely huge disparities between the very wealthy and those who are not so wealthy. Yeah. So I think that that was eye-opening to me and just like how vast that is, especially within like a few miles, you, you'll find like so many million dollar homes. And then like the next street over, you're like, oh, like there's a lot of people in this house and like they're having to do their own kinds of extensions. And like a lot of it is DIY work. And it's like very interesting because it's definitely, um, not something that is like publicized because when people visit from the continent, usually they're, they're visiting with the intent of like staying at a resort um, or at like, like in maybe the other option is like an Airbnb. So they're Mm. not really seeing like how local people are living. And I would say like the cost of living is pretty outrageous. I would say definitely on Oahu, I would say it's like the worst because of Honolulu, there are like more, um, different in you know different industries and more professionals on the island of Oahu who um can afford like crazy rent in Honolulu but I would say like the families who are native to this land or who are local to this land um like they are not always excited about the fact that um that it's changing so much because families used to be able to support themselves there and now a lot of people have to go move to the continent and you know they call Las Vegas the ninth island people in Hawaii really love going to Las Vegas oh (laughs) (laughs) it's a really funny I learned that and I was like I would never have guessed but right you hear a lot of people saying oh yeah like I'm moving to Nevada or I'm moving to Arizona because seriously the cost of living is like not feasible um Mm -hmm. like a gallon of milk is like straight up like you know eight dollars uh or nine dollars and it's like yeah it's like it's not doable you know Mm -hmm. and it's like um like a gallon of gas is like you know more than it would be anywhere else um like on the like the best day it's still going to be significantly above any you know mainland state um so that's really interesting. That was really interesting to me. As a teacher, I would say I was definitely in like the middle class um, because it's such it's so interesting where it's like there's very much like the working class and then there's like a smallish middle class and then there's like the very few very, very wealthy people. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say that like as a teacher, I really never um, was able to complain about uh, my income because I knew still like what I'm making as one single person is still more than, um, you know, what a lot of families are making um, for for three or four or five people. So I definitely kept that in mind uh, when I was 
talking about money, when I was like thinking about money, when I was living there with my friends of like, I'm one person and I'm only supporting myself, which definitely made that easier. Um, But I do think that for those of my friends who are teachers who have many kids or want to be able to buy a home, that's like not really doable. Like you can't really buy a home in Hawaii as a teacher. It's kind of like in California, you can't buy a home if you're a couple of teachers, like you're not going to be able to do that um, given just the costs of the homes and your salaries in comparison. So that was definitely interesting for me that as one person, a young person who my only expenses were myself, um, that was doable. And also like it's interesting in Teach for America. So Teach for America doesn't pay you anything, but the schools, like the district um, and the state, like that's how your funding goes. So you're actually paid like a regular teacher, although your first year, um, you're actually paid as like a teacher without a license because you're earning your license through your first year. Typically, so there are some okay. people in Teach for America who who already like did their four year degrees and like already have their licenses, but not everybody has a license in addition to their degree. Mm-hmm. So um, so those people are definitely paid less because they are not like um, considered highly qualified teachers but then you get to the point of being a highly qualified teacher usually like in your second year um you are you know paid a normal teaching salary for like a, an early on kind of teacher mm-hmm. um but it's definitely interesting because you can see like as a young person you're like oh i'm totally okay like you know you don't have like a ton of extra money to be spent but you never really struggle or worry about it. But then when it gets to like, oh, but I want to have a house and I want to have kids, then you're like, okay, well, now the salary is actually not really going to do. I think that that's the struggle that a lot of people face. And I think that's a big reason that uh, teacher retention is extremely low in Hawaii, that it's really, really hard to keep teachers on the islands for a lot of reasons. I think geographic reasons um, and also like economic reasons. I think that all those things play a part in just like, it's not always sustainable. Yeah. I think it's like a very sad reality because Hawaii deserves to have amazing teachers who stay. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like, if you are trying to create a future, you may or may not be able to do that. Yeah. Yeah, that's really hard. Um, yeah, and that's a shame too. Like, I think teacher retention is like a problem throughout the States. Obviously there's like a unique uh, aspect to it in Hawaii, but um yeah, it's really unfortunate. Like you need teachers, but it's hard for them to to have a stable living. Um, but you need uh, to, well, one of the things you need to get teachers to stay where they are. So, wow. Um, yeah, that's really difficult. Um, but I guess for you at the time, it was enough since you were just like a single person, you know, just kind of living your life there at the time. Uh, and you said you were there for two years. Yes. Um, was that like the limit or had you decided you wanted to move on to California or whatever at, at that time? Yeah. So the Teach for America commitment is two years. So they ask okay. you to, to teach at your school, your um, like assigned school for two years. Um, but you are usually like encouraged to stay beyond. So I absolutely loved my school team and my uh, principal and assistant principal. They all told me like, you know, we would be happy to have you stay. And honestly, I really wanted to stay like in my heart. I really, really, really wanted to stay. But mm-hmm. I felt like there were certain things that I needed um to, to learn and experience in my life at like in my twenties, um, before I could really like, you know, settle down anywhere. Um, mm-hmm. so that was actually like the big reason that I had to move was like, I needed to go find a Punjabi community, learn more about my own language yeah. and culture and identity, because, you know, I'm not even a great Punjabi speaker, which is so sad, like that, I, that there are so many words that I can't even 
speak about certain contexts because I like don't know, I don't have the vocab for it, you know? Um, which is sad because I'm like, I'm a Spanish, uh, speaker, uh, not a native speaker, but a a decently uh, proficient speaker, which served me pretty well, like in my community, because actually on the Island where I was, there is a large, um, and a growing population of, uh, Mexican immigrants. So people who come directly from Mm. Mexico to the big Island, and that's predominantly, um, as a result of the coffee farming that happens on the Island. So the Hawaii grows a lot of coffee and the big Island is like, well known for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of a lot of my students had come over and they were Spanish speakers. So being able to like communicate with their families was super helpful, you know, and yeah. like translate in special education meetings with their parents. Like that was such like a a benefit to to the knowledge and and like schooling experience that I'd had. Like growing up and like learning Spanish from fourth grade, you know, was super helpful. Um, but then when it comes to like my own native language, I'm like, I struggle with this. So I was like, I need yeah. to go learn it more, you know, which is a big reason I went to India. And also like a big reason I thought like, I shouldn't, I need to like live in, in California for a little bit because there are so many Punjabis here who come generate like for generations, they've been coming here, um, directly from Punjab. And like, I kind of want to see what it looks like to live in a community that has so many people who are of my own ethnic background when like, honestly, that hasn't really been my experience in life so far um, in Michigan or in Hawaii. So there were just certain things that I like, you know, I needed to, to experience and I needed to be a little bit closer to my family to be able to, to go to things that, you know, were important to my parents and my siblings. Um, so it's definitely been like an interesting transition away from Hawaii because I, I miss it so much. You know, I, yeah. I loved it. I loved it. I absolutely did. And and even now when I talk about it, like it makes my heart hurt because I want to go mm-hmm. back and I can't wait to go back. But there are just, you know, I think that's part of like the blessing of being able to to travel like this and to live in different places. It's like your heart is always going to be in so many places and with so many people. And like that's an enormous blessing. And like I can't really call it a problem. So, <laughs> you know, even though it hurts my heart, it's also like I'm so lucky. Like my heart might hurt because it's exploding with so much love. Like that's why. So I think it's like important to keep that frame of mind of like I'm incredibly lucky to even like have that like you know small challenge of being like I miss people and like I miss places yeah that's a good problem to have being able to miss people or have people who miss you is is um is really special um and you also okay so you also volunteered was it in high school or in college you volunteered abroad yeah in college so I went on two of those trips you know where they take you and they're like you're going to see, um, you know, like a different community and you're going to like help them. And, and you kind of believe it, you know? So I went on two of these trips when I was a sophomore in college. Uh, one was like the summer going into sophomore year and one was spring break that year. Um, the first was going to East Africa. So we went to, um, uh, Tanzania for like a couple of weeks and we were doing mobile health clinics. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the thing was like, we weren't actually like, obviously we're college kids. So we weren't actually like experts in any of the, the medicine or anything like that. So we were actually helping to facilitate um, mobile health clinics that were run by local doctors. So okay. basically the local doctors needed um, extra hands. They just like needed extra people to like set things up for them and, um, like, uh, like line up the patients and like do their, you know, charting at the beginning and all that kind of stuff. So they just like needed extra people. And there's basically this program where they would go through, um, and they would like cycle through. So like different kids would come every time. And like, it was people who just like wanted to see a different part of the world and like wanted to have more, 
um, like more of a knowledge base of like what it means to be in like medicine or in dentistry or in pharmacy or whatever. Mm -hmm. So people on my trip were from like all different um, educational backgrounds. And obviously like I was not studying those things, but I was more looking at it like I wanted to understand global health disparities. I thought like that's, you know, something that I might be interested in going into. And, you know, it turned out that I actually realized my passion was truly education. But even then, when I was on that trip, um, my job was to help teach the kids how to brush their teeth. So we Mm. would like, you know, hand out supplies. And I like learned enough uh, Swahili phrases to be able to like walk them through brushing their teeth, but like not really more than that. So that always feels kind of weird when you're like, well, this is like, not the most authentic experience because I'm here for two weeks and I'm teaching yeah. our kids how to brush their teeth. But like when this toothbrush is like old and they are trying to get rid of it, like who's going to give them the next one, you know? So it's kind mm-hmm. of like not really a sustainable um, effort, I would say. And, and others might totally disagree and say that like maybe it is. But uh, just for me, it was like um, it was something that really like made me think about the longer term impact that we're having and like how to deepen our impacts uh, and really how to support local people in in uplifting their own communities so that we yeah. can stop um, showing up in places where we don't belong. Uh, because, <laughs> like, you know, we're just, like, further colonizing, right? Like, I don't know. It was just kind of, like, it was kind of interesting to me. So that was my first trip. Mm-hmm. Then I went on another one. And, and at the time, I didn't really have these reflections. At the time, I was like, oh, that's cool. I, like, got to go to Tanzania and, like, see something totally different and, like, learn. Uh, and, like, these kids are super sweet and like I got to like you know like learn a little bit about a different totally different part of the world um Mm -hmm. so I did learn a little bit right but then I went that spring break I went to the Dominican Republic and I was super excited to go there because I was like I speak Spanish so like this is like a little bit better you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) so I was like I can at least talk to the kids and like you know have some kind of communication like that's actually ongoing um so I I got to um teach kids there also about like oral health um, and like hygiene and just like helping. So actually there we were also helping. That one was pretty much dental focused. So I was helping local dentists who were, they basically were like people from the, from the Dominican Republic or from like close by countries who like do this work a lot where like, this is what they do like solely, you know, and they basically go around and they um, do different uh, dental procedures that like need to be done for people. Um, but usually like there aren't like, it's like a lot of small towns where people don't have like a regular dentist. So like these people would travel around and they basically wanted us to be like helping with the supplies and like helping with like minor things um, that like we could help with and like assist through any procedures. So we all had like more hands-on experience with that too, which felt mm-hmm. pretty odd to me after when I came back, I was like, yo, like, you know, I don't have the knowledge base for this. Like maybe like if I went to dental school, then maybe it would make more sense. But like, you know, I, I just felt like um, it was also the kind of thing that really challenged my thinking around like what it means to be going abroad. Like how do we show up when we go abroad and like how do we um, challenge ourselves to like not just be typical American tourists of like I'm going to show up and like pretend like this was all created for my entertainment. You know, mm-hmm. I feel like so many people, uh, you know, talk about visiting different places and they say like oh I've I've done this I've done this and it's sometimes we'll name cities like oh I've done Paris and it's like oh you, you've done it like you you know everything about that place and it's like <laughs> like you you don't like you haven't experienced everything like you don't know everything about it like you can live your entire lifetime in a place and not have done everything right yeah and, and you can be native that to that land and not have done everything so to me it's kind of like um 
that really reframed my thinking. And so as much as I'm like, oh, maybe those trips aren't the most productive or uh, sustainable, I also feel like it really opened my eyes at an early age once I was able to reflect on that in the months following um, to, to understand, like, look, going forward, like through my 20s, 30s, 40s, as long as I'm as long as I'm granted to be here, like I'm going to make sure that I am traveling with a different um lens and like really challenging myself to to not be um just a tourist and like to not uh think that all of this was was made for me like Mm -hmm. i need to remember that this is somebody's home and like and if they sometimes people like will open their homes to tourists and and you know that kind of thing but we also have to wonder like why is it that they're willing to do that like who is exploiting them enough to be like oh you know you should open your home for these tourists because we're going to pay you this much like what is going on where that might be necessary for them to do that you know right yeah have to think about what's going on behind the scenes yeah Yeah, totally (laughs) um okay so i'm sorry if you mentioned this already was this the same program that you went through both times or were they like unrelated to each other Okay. Um, they were actually not super related. It was like two different student organizations okay. on campus at college. So yeah, they were two different organizations. The first one was um, more surrounding like all different kinds of um, healthcare and like global health. And it was like less of like a like a pre-med, pre-dent kind of, of program. And then the second one was more of a pre-med, pre-dent program. Um, but it was also supposed to be like, you know, uh, an opportunity for like language immersion and like seeing global health disparities and that kind of thing. So it was, um, both of them were, were unique, but also like, there's a lot of programs like these, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, were, when you were in Tanzania and in the Dominican Republic, were you staying amongst the communities that you were serving? Like what was, what were your living arrangements while you were in those places? Yeah. So when I was in Tanzania, we stayed at a um, like small locally owned hotel and it was one that um, was like partnered with a school. So any profits that the hotel made went toward the school that was like right next door. So that one was like a little bit more um, meaningful in terms of where we were staying because we were like with – like local people, like it was all local people working there who were like, this is like our community school. So like, we're happy to see that like, this is the benefit. Um, And it was like a very small hotel. It wasn't like lavish. It was just like really beautiful. And like, um, just like a really like lovely place to be because I actually did get to talk to people and like hear about um, just like authentic, you know, experiences that they have every day, especially Mm -hmm. with tourists. Um, And then in the Dominican Republic, uh, I'm trying to remember. I think we just stayed in hotels. So, yeah, I'm pretty sure we only stayed in hotels. So we um, didn't really stay amongst the community. No, we were um, we were just, yeah, in, in hotels that were nearby, um, but we would bus into our locations. And mm. we weren't really far from them, uh, but we definitely, like, were not staying, like, with families or anything like that. Yeah, okay. And, um... Okay, so my knowledge on this is very foggy, but from what I remember, in certain African countries, there are sizable Indian populations. Um, I know, like, Kenya is a country that comes to mind. Um, South Africa, well, you were in East Africa, so it's different, but South Africa is another country that comes to mind. Um, In Tanzania, were you able to observe, I mean, is it similar in Tanzania in terms of having an Indian population there? 
Yes, that was so cool to me because I had never, like, I had never known that. Um, but then I did learn in years after that um, that actually there's a huge Indian population in East Africa, in particular in Kenya and in Tanzania. Hmm. So I, when I was in Tanzania, I would see like um, like a gordwara, which is a sick uh, house of worship, which is like hmm. honestly that blew my mind because I was like, there aren't even any in Hawaii, so like there's not <laughs> a single one in Hawaii. I was like, wow, but I'm finding this in um, in uh, in you know, in Tanzania, I like saw one and I didn't end up going inside, but like took a picture outside and I was like, this is so cool. Um, and then I did see like trucks that had like symbols from my religion and like, we're a pretty small religion. We're only 2% of India's population and mm. we're like not even like a noticeable population outside of India in terms of like what people would, would rank as like, um, I mean, there's like a few million of us around the world outside of India. Um, so it's like pretty small. Um, but I think, um, I think that that's that for me was a really cool experience to be like, wow, like the diversity here is like pretty extreme, too. And and I felt like also that made me feel really comfortable there. And I think actually the places I've traveled abroad or even in Hawaii, just like being a brown woman um, has really like been my benefit, like being a benefit to me, which is interesting because it's never been a benefit on the mainland. But, you know, everywhere else. <laughs> Everywhere else, people are like, oh, like, you know, they just like, feel some affinity with you. And I think that's like, that was so like nice because I hadn't experienced it before, you know, like that was just totally different. Growing up in Michigan, I felt like I was always such an outsider for just having brown skin. Like that was, people just could never accept that English was my first language or that mm -hmm. I was American born or yeah. that I belonged here or that I could possibly understand the culture here. I'm like, this is my culture. Like I'm American too. Like, what are you saying? You know? Mm -hmm. um, but then even going to Hawaii where kids were like, oh miss, like there's a term in Hawaii in, uh, Hawaiian. It's it's haole, but it, like it's actually haole, which means like without the breath. So mm. in Hawaiian language um, and Hawaiian culture, the there's an idea that ha, your ha, your breath is like your life, right? It's like um, it's it's everything to do with like who you are, and and that's um, kind of what you should share with people is you should share your ha with them. So that's actually mm. where the name comes from, ha va'i. It's like um, ha and va'i, so the breath and fresh water. So like that's what oh, that's where the name comes from. Okay. Yeah, so it's really beautiful. Mm -hmm. um, and when I was in Hawaii, I learned this term haole, but people just say haole, but haole means like foreigner now people just kind mm -hmm. of take it as like a person without the breath but basically it means a foreigner originally it was given to like the white colonizers who showed up on their mm -hmm. boats um so they were called howlies but now people use it pretty generically it's just like white people like white people are howlies but they don't always mean it as a bad thing sometimes people do but they don't always mean it as a bad thing so my kids would say like you know they would say something and they'd be like oh man like sorry i didn't know that like you know it's because i'm not from here and i would like you know, try to like learn and as much as I could without like doing it at their expense. Yeah. And my kids would be like, oh, but don't worry, miss, like you're not holy. Like, you know, you're one of us. And I was kind of like, well, I'm not <laughs> one of you, but like, thanks for thinking that I am, you know, and like you're accepting me like I am. Yeah. Because, and so much of that was just based on my brown skin. And I just never gotten like an immediate advantage based on my brown skin before ever in my life, you know? Wow. But I got that one time, like living in Hawaii, you know, or like the the times that I was in the Dominican Republic and people would assume like that I spoke Spanish and I was like, awesome, like that's great. And people would assume in Tanzania that like I belonged there and like they wouldn't immediately look at me the way they looked at some of my wow. classmates who were, you know, clearly, clearly Taurus um, mm -hmm. to them. So, you know, it was amazing to actually have that be a benefit for the first time in my life. Yeah, being able to go somewhere for the first time and you feel like you belong a little better or people assume that you belong 
more immediately than you know your the country that you come from yeah uh yeah that's that's wild oh my goodness <laughs> just thinking about what that must feel like you know <laughs> And then you said you're, you are, are you still like a Spanish speaker? Do you consider yourself? Um, yes. Yeah, okay. I do. Um, I say like when, so like when my kids ask, because now I teach in like a predominantly Latino community, mm-hmm. um, my kids like all speak Spanish pretty much. Uh, well, not all, but like 80% of my kids speak Spanish and their family speak Spanish. So um, when they do like speak in class, I can like if they swear, I'm like, yo, like language, you know, and they still like know, like, they'll be like, oh, I forgot, you know, that she knows. And, yeah. and when I have to call their parents, like a lot of times it's helpful to speak in Spanish or like translate in meetings. Like that's definitely been a bigger role of mine um, this year of like when there are parents who are more comfortable, like speaking to someone who speaks Spanish, you know, I'm happy to like be there and kind of like support in whatever way I can. Um, so I, I would say like, I'm pretty proficient, but I definitely don't consider myself to be fluent because I think saying fluent kind of has like, um, I think, I, I really think like native speakers are like the most fluent and you can become pretty fluent, but I would say like proficient is probably a more respectful term in terms mm-hmm. of like the fact that I learned in school, you know, like I didn't learn at home and there's definitely a lot of slang that I don't understand. And it's like, it's different based on where the person that you're talking to comes from, because like in Mexico, the slang is super different from in the Dominican Republic and even the accents are super different. And like when I traveled abroad to, to Spain for fun, just to see one of my friends who had, um, had studied abroad in, in America, that's how I met her. Um, <laughs> I, you know, realized like, whoa, like my accent in Spanish is totally different from the Spanish, Spanish accent, you know? And so getting to like, um, to really understand like just how diverse one language can be, you know, with 23 Spanish speaking countries, I think there are, um, you know, I think like just honoring that diversity and also like not imposing myself as like, oh, I'm a fluent speaker, you know, like I think that's like an important distinction to make too. And maybe part of that comes from the fact that like I grew up um, around a lot of people who, uh, you know, spoke Punjabi fluently. And then when I went to college, I would hear from some people, I speak Punjabi, or even when I moved to Hawaii and I met people who were like, oh, I studied abroad in India, like I speak Hindi. And then we'd like speak it together or we'd watch a movie and I'd, I'd be like, you don't speak this language, you know, like, you say you do. So I just feel like there's, um, there's like a level of respect and like reverence that I think people should show for other languages and mm-hmm. like in not saying like, I'm a fluent speaker of a language, if you're really, really not, you know, like, I just think it's important to say, like, there's a difference between fluency and proficiency. And I think yeah. it's, like, an important thing to, to remember that distinction. Yeah. Yeah. I I asked because um, I know you were only there for a short time, but, like, in the Dominican Republic, did that, like, improve your Spanish at all? Or did it, I mean, I don't know how much you can improve in just the amount of time you were there. But, I mean, I guess, or did it, like, shed light on, like you said, your perspective on in terms of how different Spanish can be depending on where you're located? Definitely. So yeah, I would say the way that it improved my Spanish was helping me to understand like another dialect. So Mm -hmm. in the Dominican Republic, there are definitely like um, some linguistic differences just in terms of how things are pronounced. Um, So even words uh, that end in, in an S, sometimes the S's are not said. So instead of los manos, people might say la mano and they might mean Los manos, but they're saying, but like, it's different. So I think like, you have to be ready to like, you know, adjust quickly where like a lot of plurals, like might not sound like plurals if you're not thinking like, oh yeah, that's like a distinction here. Mm -hmm. So that was like a big thing I noticed. And that was a few years ago. So I'm trying to remember if there were any other things that I, um, 
can think of off the top of my head. Um, but there were definitely some differences like that just, you know, enlightened me in terms of like, this is the true that diversity that exists in the language. And like, it's amazing that like, it is the same language and people from like different countries can still communicate with each other. But like, there are things that help you to understand, like when you meet somebody and you hear them speak Spanish, you're like, oh, like, I, are you from this country? Because, or like you ask them, which country are you from? And then you're like, oh, I could tell because of the accent. Yeah. And like, you know, and I can't do that as much as like a lot of my native speaker friends, like obviously they can tell more, mm -hmm. um, but it's still cool to be like, oh, I could totally tell that you are from Spain or that you are from the Dominican Republic yeah. or like you're from Mexico. And like, I can kind of tell because I've been to those places, um, but it's different from, from really like knowing the language uh, on such like an innate level that you know it's like that's what you grew up with like that's you know how you how you think all the time and like I can think in Spanish a little bit here and there and like I do and sometimes I've had dreams in Spanish and I've woken <laughs> up and been like that's so random yeah um, but like but I think that's like also um that's like a cool experience but also like there's just always so much more that you can learn Mm -hmm. if you're not the native speaker of a language. And even if you are the native speaker of a language, I feel like my English has changed in moving around, you know, in, in yeah. Hawaii, people speak pidgin English and the uh, linguistic term for that is Hawaiian Creole, but, um, or yeah, Hawaiian Creole. And then in, in actually in Hawaii, people call it pidgin um, mm -hmm. or pidgin English, but it's, it's basically what evolved. It's the English that evolved over time as a result of, um, the plantations that were that were started in Hawaii, where people from laborers from all over like Asia and all over the South Pacific, like were brought um, to these islands and they were trying to communicate with each other and they were trying to communicate with um, the people who came uh, to colonize the islands. And that's how their English developed. So even like the way that I speak English now, sometimes I, I find myself wanting to say a word and then being like, oh, it's not really my word to use, but it's uh, mm -hmm. it's a word that is in my mind now because I heard my kids say it 12 times a, an hour uh, every day of, <laughs> you know, two years. So yeah. it's like, you know, you basically, um, you end up changing even your own native language like even the way that I pronounce things um it I feel like it's such like a hodgepodge of like there's all these different backgrounds and factors that have gone into how I speak English like growing up with British parents who have complete English accents and like um you know I learned from them so then growing up in school here in, in Michigan actually kids would would say like why do you say that word like that you know I would say banana <laughs> or tomato or um, mm -hmm. you know, like I always say, Oh, I've been here. I've been there. And my kids, my friends would be like, what are you saying? Like, that's not how you say it. And I was like, what are you talking about? I didn't even realize, you know, I was saying things differently yeah. uh, until I got so much older until I studied linguistics in college. And then I was like, Oh my gosh, I didn't even realize. Um, because you don't really notice, you know, and then like mm -hmm. even just the way that I always used to try to articulate so clearly because my my British family articulates so clearly. And in Michigan, I always wanted to make sure people knew, you know, subconsciously, I didn't even realize, but subconsciously as a high schooler, I always wanted to be considered, you know, articulate, whatever that was. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, I wanted to sound as white as possible so that people wouldn't say, oh, well, you're not from here, right? You know, mm -hmm. I, I always wanted to like fit in so badly as, as right. a kid because I thought that was what I was supposed to do um, because that was what everyone tells you you're supposed to do, you know, whether it's directly or indirectly. And then in Hawaii, I realized, oh my gosh, I, that's not even my true voice. And then I would just speak as I spoke and, and my kids would understand me. And I was like, great, I'm still totally, um, you know, intelligible 
even if I don't sound, you know, the way that the people on the news sound in Michigan, you know, like, and it was just like, it really opened my mind to, to how diverse any one language is and like yeah. how beautiful that is and, and how much we should honor that, you know, the diversity. Yeah. That's wonderful. I, I, I like how you put it, like your true voice, like even though you are born in a certain culture or like depending on like how you spoke at home or what country you live in, like you might have a language that you know, like, and you're aware of the standard way of speaking, but even as an individual, you have your own voice, like your own way of speaking within that, um, within that standard. So, um, yeah, I think that's a really important thing to remember, uh, each person having their own voice, having their own way of speaking, you know, their, you know, their language or like the language of the, the community they're in. Um, and okay. So a couple more questions on the volunteer thing. So these are volunteer programs. Uh, did you have to like pay a certain amount in order to participate to cover your fees or anything like that? Yes. Um, so that's something that is really interesting about these programs is Mm -hmm. they're like, come volunteer abroad for $2,000, you know, like (laughs) they're really crazy amounts of money. And at the time I just kind of thought it was justified. And, and mostly because my classmates were doing these programs. I thought like, Oh, this is what you got to do to like have the full experience of college and like to understand. But looking back, I'm like, Oh my gosh, like I spent like an absurd amount of money on like you know, a 10 day spring break trip or like a two week trip to, um, to Tanzania. Like it is an absurd amount of money. And, um, and sometimes I kind of question if that is like the most appropriate way to go about, um, to just do this kind of service work. Like should, I don't know. I mean, I think it speaks to the fact that like, we have to be critical of our own, of our own trips and our own ways of, of showing up in places. Yeah. Um, did you, uh, do anything specific to help you cover those expenses or do you remember any, if any of like the fellow people who participated, did anything to, um, did anything specific to be able to fund participating in those programs? I think, um, oh, so I think that makes me think of two things. One, um, some people worked some like part-time jobs at college. Like that's what I did. I always mm-hmm. worked, um, a part-time job. So, that was something that helped me. Um, But then another thing that makes me think of is just the fact of like, who was going on these trips? It was mostly kids who could ask their parents for $2,000. And I think that's the reality, (laughs) right? Is like, most people were like, hey mom, I'm going on a spring break trip. Uh, I need you to write me a check. And that was what was done. And Mm -hmm. the bulk of my trip was also paid for by my parents. And maybe that wasn't really fair to them, but I had requested it. And my parents had always kind of thought, well, if it's part of your education, we want to help support you. So Mm -hmm. whatever that expense is, we're going to do it. But even then, like now reflecting, I'm like, oh, that maybe was not fair um, to them because how much, how much of a crucial experience, you know, was that really at the time? Should I have been more thoughtful? And, and maybe it was just like I was 18, 19 and like didn't really <laughs> understand and like didn't have enough perspective to really be critical. And yeah. so maybe also in a way it was like a really good thing because now I am, I think, more aware and hopefully I will just continue to get more and more aware of like what these issues really are globally. Um, but yeah, the vast majority of these kids were kids who came from money and like wanted a really cool trip and like yeah. thought, well, I'm doing service work so it'll help me get into dental school or it'll help me get into med school mm-hmm. or it'll help me get into whatever school. Um, and like, I can afford it, you know, and it's kind of like, so when you think about who's really going on these trips, it's a, it's a lot of kids with money. Yeah. 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 That's a, that's unfortunately the reality of a lot of 
a lot of programs abroad is a lot of times it's people who can already afford afford to participate. So, um, which is not always a bad thing, but like you said, it's something to keep in mind. Like who who readily has access to these things versus people who have to like work a little harder or just you know there has to be more effort involved in order for them to be aware of these options and participate in these things, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. And so you you obviously said you uh, would love to return to Hawaii again. Do you have any interest in returning to Tanzania or the Dominican Republic? I think I do, but I would be very critical of my own return. I would want to make sure that I'm going back in the most, um, uh, I guess the least harmful way. Right. Mm. So I think that like just traveling in general, we have to be so like critical of how we are showing up in those spaces. Like, are we doing it at others expense? Um, Are we doing it for selfish reasons? Like what is it that we're showing up for? Um, Mm. And I I think that's like something I want to keep in mind um, as I go back. I do want to go back, but I also don't want to go lay on a resort like, you know, lay uh, on the beach at a resort, like in the Dominican Republic. For me, that's not the most authentic way. Um, I think part of it is that going back for longer periods of time, I think is more meaningful. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think like for me, going to Hawaii for two years, that gave me such an incredible knowledge base to be able to now ally with like local people. And when I'm, even though I'm living on mainland again, to be able to have conversations like this one with people who might not know a ton about Hawaii and get to at least like advocate for the islands Mm -hmm. as like an outsider still. And as a person who is not native to the land, is not local to the land, but to be able to at least put it on other people's radar of like, this is what you should keep in mind. And like, and here are all the beautiful things that are happening there. And like, just trying to be an ally, even though I'm not living there anymore. So I think for me, like creating that bridge is important. Um, I think if I were to go back to the Dominican, I'd want it to be for like a longer period where I was actually working with like local people who wanted me to be there, who felt like there was some value that I could bring. Um, And I would want to do specifically whatever work it is that they are requesting that I do. And Tanzania, I have been thinking about going back to climb Mount Kilimanjaro because when I went last time, Mm. um, we got to go up a little bit into like the waterfalls and like got to go see the coffee plantations on the mountain. But we didn't go. We didn't like do the we didn't summit or anything. We didn't like climb. climb. Um, So I, I was thinking about going back. But I do more research into what local people think of that. Like, do local people uh, appreciate, like, truly appreciate that we kind of show up and we're like, oh, I just, like, need a tour guide for, you know, a week (laughs) and a half um, while I go up this mountain and come back down. Is it, Mm -hmm. like... Is that like helping the tourist uh, tourism industry in like a positive way or is it like creating a burden for the local people? And I think I need to like do more research into that because that's the thing I've been thinking about. Like, oh, it'd be really amazing to get to go back and do that, but I want to do it in the right way. Um, so I think that's something I try to keep in mind, too, uh, of like not further exploiting people who have already um, like dealt with the scars of, of colonization. Like, I feel like those scars exist in my own life. And I feel like who am I to go show up and and further this for anybody else, you know, and further harm people. So I think just going abroad and like going anywhere, really, like we have to be so critical of how we show up and remember that like the world isn't just our vacation spot. You know, I think that's like so hard for a lot of people to to Mm -hmm. fathom because they're like, well, I want to. And it's like, well, like, you need to really think about what that means for people who are, whose home that is, you know? And, and even like, for me, it's like, I don't really feel 
native to anywhere. I mean, now more to Punjab now that I've gotten actually go. But even then when I show up, I'm an outsider. People see me and they're like, oh, clearly you're not from here. Like, I don't know how they can tell, but within 30 seconds, they know. They, they can always voice, tell. Like, yeah, they're just like, they know straight away, 30 seconds. And they hear my voice and they're like, yep, she's definitely from America, right? Um, which is interesting. But then even in Michigan, like when I, sometimes I think about, um, you know, growing up in Michigan and I think, well, is that the place that I'm supposed to be then? Because I was born and raised there. But then I think, well, there are indigenous people who, you know, that was their land and like mm -hmm. we took it from them. So and it's so it's really hard to grapple with this. I think every day is sort of a struggle um, in terms of like knowing where I really belong, because is there really anywhere now that colonization has has had such incredible impacts on on the world, I mean, is there any real place where I can go where I don't feel like um, like I'm doing some harm to somebody? And like that's that's really hard for me. And and especially as a teacher, uh, I try to make sure that my that the work that I do kind of outweighs the harm that I'm doing. And I try to live specifically in communities where I won't be contributing to the gentrification. Um, I try to con I try to really keep that in mind. I try to really keep in mind like where like where I'm spending my money. Um, am I supporting local places or am I supporting big corporations? Like what am I where like basically I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. Like if we are living in this capitalist society, like what are we what power are we really utilizing? Like you don't just vote with a ballot in November, you vote with every dollar that you spend. Yeah. And like keeping that in mind, I think is like super crucial. Um, and like, I think I'm maybe sometimes I'm like hyper aware and sometimes it's like a debilitating awareness <laughs> of like, I am like always thinking about this and yeah. maybe it's like to a fault and, and it, that's totally possible. But I just think until I find a balance, I'd rather be on the more critical side than on like the less aware, more apathetic side. So it's kind of a constant struggle. Yeah. It's like a balance trying not to, you know, doing things that you want to do and that interests you wanting to enjoy your time and the things that you decide to participate in, but also thinking about like causing harm and limiting the extent to which you uh, cause harm or participating in things that cause harm. Uh, no, I totally get that. You know, um, yeah, it's it's good to be aware, but it's it's a struggle, right? Because you still want to you still want to enjoy things, right? So yeah, um, yeah. Do you have um, uh, any upcoming travel plans, or in general, are there any places, either domestic or internationally, that you would like to go at some point? Hmm. Yeah, I think that's a big question for me right now. Um, over the last few years, I had the opportunity to to just travel kind of more for fun to a few different mm -hmm. places. Um, I went to Israel and briefly to the West Bank. Um, I went to Iceland. Uh, I go to, to England a lot to see my family. So I yeah. get to go to like, a few different places, but I try to keep in mind like what it is that, um, that my impact is. But I think going forward, um, I'd really like to go to more of Latin America okay. uh, in particular. But I think that's also like... Um, I, I'm really like trying to make sure I'm going in the right ways. So I think right now is sort of like a, a rest period of like, mm -hmm. where should I, you know, where should I go? Um, and where, 
where is it okay for me to be right now? So I think um, just trying to keep that in mind of like, I know that there are often fads with like, everyone's going to Thailand right now. And it's like, well, what are you <laughs> seeing in Thailand? I'm seeing the beaches. Are you seeing anything else? Are you doing anything else? Not really. I'm like drinking at my Airbnb. And it's like, oh, well, like, is that the, is that like what you're hoping for out of this trip? Like, I don't know. I guess for me, I want to be really critical about what it yeah. is that I'm hoping for out of every experience. Like, and just um, and doing it with like the most intent and most care that I can. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm not really sure. I guess I, I need to put a few things on my list, but I also want to make sure that they're authentic experiences and that I'm not just creating a bucket list to cross things off of um, without really having like a, an organic, authentic experience in each of these places. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. It's good to take time to rest and think and you know, plan ahead, you know, so um, I hope that wherever you go next, that it's um, what you hope that it will be and that you'll be able to get the experience out of it that you want. Um, I mean, there's no rush. You have time. I just figured I'd ask, you know, just to see what what places might be on your mind, you know. Um, (laughs) Okay, so last few questions. Um, You know, we talked a lot about Hawaii and how much you enjoyed the various types of experiences that you had there, both in teaching and outside of, you know, uh, working as a teacher. Um, Do you have, um, I guess this is probably a hard question to answer, but do you have a favorite thing that you remember? Like what was your favorite part about living and working as a teacher in Hawaii? Like, like, does anything come to mind? I mean, sure, there are a lot of things come to mind, but is anything that's like most salient that comes to your mind in terms of your favorite part of, of that experience? Yeah, I think for me, um, the bonds that I had with my kids, I think are Mm -hmm. going to last my lifetime. Um, You know, just like even now when they still email me, like they're like, can you help me edit this essay? And I'm like, oh my God. I'm glad you haven't forgotten me already, you know, Um, and just like when they're asking like, oh, can you write me a letter of recommendation, even though I haven't had you for two years, you know, and it's like, I just feel like those kinds of bonds, um, like, oh my gosh, like some of the kids that I met, I just feel like, oh my gosh, I mean, they were, they were just so wonderful to me and they are just so wonderful as people. And I think just the way that they represent their island and represent their state and represent their home, like Mm -hmm. they just really, they just do such a good job of like representing in the best way possible, you know? And like, I just like totally love and adore them. And I just, I miss them so much. I hope they know how much I miss them. Um, But for me, like those relationships with, with kids who are the future, like really truly are like the future of these islands um, and of the world, like, gosh, those bonds are like never going to, uh, never going to fade. Yeah, that's good. That's really good. And um, thinking about Hawaii and also the other places you've been, um, do you have any advice or major takeaways you'd like to share with anyone looking to travel to the places that you've been or um, even like volunteering or teaching, getting involved with the types of things you've done? Any advice um, that you would like to share um, with someone who's looking to maybe have some experiences as you did or go to similar places? Right. Um, I would say like the big thing I, I want everyone to kind of keep in mind and the thing I'm trying to keep in mind is um, when we volunteer abroad or when we teach abroad, um, mm-hmm. we have to remember that like 
we, although we are in a role of like being an educator, we're not like the sole holders of knowledge. Like we're not the keepers of knowledge. We are, we are people who are like participating in the learning experience. And I think that it's um, sometimes we can feel like it's my responsibility to make sure that these people know this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Or like have this skill set. But I think it's important to keep in mind, like you will learn probably more than you will teach. Um, you will gain more than you'll really be able to give. Um, and just like remember to do that with like the utmost humility and like reverence for where you are and for the people that are around you. Because truly like there is no one like right way and if we kind of try to impose anything we're further colonizing these places and i think it's just important to like keep that in mind like these places are so beautiful it's such a privilege and an honor to like be able to visit them um so we really like have to keep in mind just all the things that that those people all the strength and innate beauty that they hold um that we're not going there ever to save people or to um or to to just like reform people or to bring them anything other than like maybe hope and and support because I really think people have what they need inside and Mm -hmm. just to support that and to kind of help empower them to to feel that is what we should be doing, but never showing up with like a, here's my toolkit and now I can kind of fix everything. Like (laughs) that's a really important distinction um, because people have what they need and people are so amazing and resilient across the entire globe. And the more that we honor that and we don't believe like we are the right we're doing things the right way. Other people need our help. Like the more we, we keep that kind of critical mindset, I think then the more we gain out of our experiences and the more others gain in a positive way from having us around. Yeah, that's really important. Very, very solid, very valuable advice. Um, thank you for that. <laughs> um, and uh, last question, is there any way that people can uh reach you or keep up with what you're doing online if you would like them to do so? Sure. So I actually have a teacher Instagram. Uh, it's mostly like so that my kids from different places can can keep up with like where I am, where I'm traveling. Um, so I post like semi-regular updates on there. Mm-hmm. Um, but also when people message me on there, I'm happy to like keep in touch. Um, the The Instagram handle is at ms.com. Shokar, S-H-O-K-A-R. So at Miss Shokar um, on Instagram. Okay, perfect. Um, well, thank you so much for making the time. I know we had some issues at the beginning. I still don't know what happened, but I'm glad we were able to <laughs> make it work. I was able to hear you and <laughs> we could have this really great conversation. It's so nice meeting you and talking to you. I hope you've enjoyed this as well. Um yeah, I, I really. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh no, I was just gonna say I've loved this. Th- thank you so much for like you know thinking of me and for taking the time to, to talk to me and and really hear me like introspectively reflect. Really, yes. is what this was, you know. Yeah, I hope you have a wonderful weekend. Thank you. And, and everything else coming forward. I hope. Um, I wish you nothing but good things. And um, yeah, I really hope we can keep in touch because this has been really great. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We'll hopefully talk to you later. Okay. Uh, Sounds good. Take care. All right. Bye, Megan. Bye. (laughs) All right, y'all. There it is. Thanks to Megan for being such a wonderful guest. And I hope you like how this all turned out. 
For the rest of you listening, don't forget to follow this podcast at Young Gifted and Abroad on Instagram and Facebook. And don't forget to check out guest profiles and resource lists on younggiftedandabroad.com. Also, if you like what you've been hearing so far, then please continue to listen to this podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Acast, or Stitcher. And as always, if you have questions or comments to share, or if you yourself would like to be a guest on the show, then feel free to email me at younggiftedandabroad at gmail.com. Now, next week will be a very, very special episode, very important episode, because it will be the last episode of Young, Young Gifted and Abroad in 2018. Uh, we'll be back in 2019 for sure, <laughs> but as far as 2018 goes, next week is it, okay? <laughs> so uh, next week's guest is also a friend of Irene's and a brand new acquaintance of mine. Um, really nice guy who studied urban planning and uh, sustainability in Copenhagen. Um, so that should be pretty cool. I hope you will enjoy hearing all about that next week. But until then, thank you so much for listening and talk to you next time. Your